for 17 years, I was a pastor on the Jersey Shore. Can you say that with me? Jersey Shore. Jersey Shore. And I used to do about 20 uh, weddings a year. And one particular wedding, I was standing at the front of the church with a groom called Mike. He was pretty nervous, I could tell. And we looked to the back, and the bride was getting ready to come down the aisle. Her name was Tracy Gidley. And Tracy had waited 12 years for Mike to propose. It was a long siege. And so finally he proposed a plan for two years. And I think this must have affected her emotionally on the day because she was perfect at the rehearsal. But on the day of the wedding, she was like a boxer that was ready to come into the ring. She was bouncing down the aisle like that. And I thought, you know, I'll calm her down with my pastoral voice. And I failed throughout the whole service. She bounced like this for the whole service. I finally got to the end with some relief. I raised my hand to give the holy blessing and Tracy Gidley gave me a high five. (laughs) That was not liturgically correct. But it was weddings are high five moments and so are installations. High five. And it it is a great honor to be here in this wonderful congregation, in this amazing region you're in, the Pacific Northwest. What a beautiful part of uh, God's creation. It's exciting to be here in this this moment. Well, I want to ask you, what is the greatest crowd that ever cheered you on? Can you remember a moment? Maybe for you, it was that wedding moment. You made your promises. The service came to a conclusion. You started to lead the charge down the aisle, and the whole crowd rose up and cheered for you. Maybe you've had that moment. Or maybe it was, it was a, a moment at a recital or at a, at a play that you were involved in and you got, a, you got a standing ovation. Or maybe it was a game where there were even cheerleaders and bands that were playing for you in that moment. Given the number of military in this area, maybe it was a moment when you came back from a tour, a long tour in a difficult part of the world serving our country. And there was your family there to cheer for you. What was the moment when when you remember when you felt the most affirmation and encouragement in your life when you were cheered on? Can you get that moment in your mind? I want to show you a picture of a moment that was special in our family. This took place uh, at UNCW, and uh, I want to explain it. You know, my daughter, Madeline, she went to the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and it's a college of about about 10,000 students. So this was a graduation that involved about... 2,500 students and their families. And so we were gathered in this huge basketball stadium, and my name starts with a J, and they did it alphabetically. So we knew we had a long wait, but we were kind of in the middle of the pack. And there were so many students, you couldn't actually find, you know, they all look alike. They're all in the hats and the gowns. We couldn't actually find Maddie. But when we finally got to the J's, we were excited, and, you know, she didn't appear. There was no, no Madeline Joint that was called up to take that wonderful walk and, and get that diploma. And you're having a parent, you're wondering, did, did all that tuition go to naught? I mean, did something happen? You know, and actually we found out later what had happened was she had put her cap down on a chair and someone had stolen it. And without a cap, she had to run out, find another cap, buy another cap. And so she was the last student out of 2,500 students in line. And of course, that sounds like a disaster. It was actually the providence of God. Because you see, they had said, you can't cheer until the end. (laughs) And so what happened was, at the very end, that she's the last student, there's her picture, the entire 
10,000 people in that place stood up and cheered for our daughter. It was, it was awesome. Friends, there is a crowd cheering for us that is far greater than UNCW and far greater than any crowd that has ever cheered for you. Let's listen for a scripture today as it comes to us from Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, take off every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Let us run looking to Jesus, who is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised its shame and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, take this scripture and uh, let it enter into our minds and our hearts, imprinted on our souls, and let us live it out with confidence and joy. We ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, Jesus got in a number of arguments in his life, and the Sadducees in particular like to try to bait him. And one day, this is in Mark chapter 12, they were uh, trying to make Jesus' belief in a life beyond life look ridiculous. And I won't go into the argument. It has to do with Levite marriage and the obligation of a brother in the case of the death of his brother's wife without children to marry her. And they imagined a scenario where there were seven brothers and they said, Jesus, the idea, this is called, by the way, intellectually, a reductio ad absurdum. You make the other person's argument look ridiculous. They said, whose wife would she be in heaven? And you know what Jesus did? Before he gave them a biblical argument about leave right marriage, he said, you are really confused. You got it all upside down because God is the God of the living and not the dead. And he said, do you remember when Moses was called by God, he heard the voice of God in the burning bush and God did not say to Moses, Moses, I used to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I was formerly the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is the God of the living and not of the dead. Now, the author of the Hebrews understood that point. And he was writing to these fledgling congregations that were kind of scattered around these small communities of faith all around the Mediterranean area in this circular letter. And he was writing to communities that were were lost in, in, in some senses in a vast sea of paganism at the far edges of a hostile Roman Empire. And at times they felt overwhelmed. At times they felt under-equipped for the tasks of the gospel. And he wanted to remind them that they were not alone. Say to the person next to you, you're not alone. The author to Hebrews said, you are not alone. In fact, there is a company, an unseen company, that is cheering you on. It includes Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Moses and Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and David and the prophets and Samuel. You are not alone. Think about that company. They founded nations and they created traditions and they braved depredations and they endured persecutions. They fought battles. They contended for justice. They dealt with disaster. That crowd is cheering you on. Say to the person next to you, they're your ancestors too. But part of the great good news today is that our crowd is better than the crowd that was cheering on those first century Christians. 
Think about it for a minute. Now, we're part of the same great story. We're part of the same story that they're part of. A story that was planned before the creation of the world. A story that was exemplified in the saga of Israel. It was revealed there in the lives of all those heroes, those men and women of the faith. A story that culminated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But a story that continued for a hundred generations in the life of the church. And that means that our crowd is better than their crowd. Our crowd includes all the saints and the martyrs. Think about it. Start with A, Augustine, one of my favorite saints, and go all the way to Zoe, right, at the end. Think of all the saints that are cheering on this congregation at this moment. All the famous ones, the poets and the scholars and the healers and the helpers, the prophets and the reformers, the servants, this wonderful company. But think of the ones that never got to be famous. Think of the ones who, maybe in the history of this congregation, people you know who you committed into the hands of God, who prayed and gave and served and befriended and blessed other people right here in this place. That company is cheering you on today. We share with them a new kind of life and we build a new kind of community that crosses time and space and distance. I want to ask you today, Mulcatillo, how do we excite that great crowd? How do we animate that group and evoke their awe and their wonder and their excitement, that great cloud of witnesses? Well, we are told that we must set aside the things like, like doubt and the things like anxiety that, that, that can hold us back and weigh us down. We set aside those things, the habits of mind and the negative thoughts that cling to us so closely those patterns of soul. We must put all of that aside and we we must look to Jesus as the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith in order to run the race. Notice, not limp the race, not walk the race, not canter the race, but in order to run like a sprinter the race that God has set before us. So we know what pioneers are. They blaze a trail. They make a way where there is no way. They discover new, new ideas and new processes and new places. They establish new communities. They start new movements. Now, Jesus, in the same way, was a pioneer. He blazed a trail to connect the divine and the human realms. He made a way where there was no way between divine perfection and human brokenness. He revealed new truths about God and about us. He established a new process, didn't he? to restore the human soul. And he planted a heavenly cohort, a community on terrestrial soil. But best of all, in doing all this, he never destroyed what was previous. He perfected it. You ever thought about that, the wonder of it? He took the old covenant made with one nation. He made it a new covenant that now encircles the globe. He took the law. He didn't destroy the law, but he caught it up into the gospel of grace. He took this vague hope of a life beyond life. There's only six or seven verses in the whole Torah that talk about a life beyond life. He took it and he gave it substance and reality in the resurrection. He took the promised land, the promised land. Think about that wonderful promise. He didn't abandon the promised land. Instead, he made it a kingdom that has no boundaries of geography or chronology. That God goes ahead of us. He goes ahead, always pioneering and perfecting. And if we follow, he takes the best of who we've been and who we are 
and he perfects it. Now, I need you to be Baptist just for a few minutes. Will you do that for me? I need you to be a little bit of a chorus. And I'm going to say the God we follow. And I want you to say, is the go-ahead God. We're going to practice. The God we follow. Oh, I love having choir directors. They, they can do this so well in choir. The God we follow is a go-ahead God because he goes into the personal crises we have. Uh, in 2001, I got the news that I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, fourth stage. And so I did conventional treatments, Tom's River, New Jersey, and they failed. And so I went to a big cancer center in Philadelphia, and the, the man who ran the lymphoma part of that center at Fox Chase said to me, you're not treatable, it's too late. As I was leaving his office, I said, what would you do if you were me? And he said, I'd go to Sloan Kettering in New York. So I had this little ray of hope, and I, we went to Sloan Kettering. It took about three or four weeks to get an appointment, and the doctor said, well, you're dying, but we'll give you the king of chemos, and if we get a little window, we'll give you a stem cell transplant. I don't know if you know how that works, but they want to be able to give you levels of radiation chemotherapy that are deadly, that destroy your bone marrow, uh, but also hopefully the, the disease, and then they take out these stem cells and they freeze them. They try to get one to two million of them. Uh, on average, and then they put the stem cells back into your body. And by the wonder of God, the stem cells go through your bloodstream into your bones and they recreate uh, your bone marrow so that you can have an immune system, white blood cells and red blood cells to oxygenate. And so I went into to th this process and the time came to do the collection. It was supposed to take a week. And I was sitting in this little room. Imagine there's about 30 of us that are doing the stem cell collection. And we you know, five more, five days to get these 1 million stem cells. And next to me, I could hear there was a Christian couple, Mike and Kathy. So I pulled back this little screen. My wife was with me, Julia, and we prayed. We had a little prayer circle in the collection center at Moral Sloan Kettering. And the next day I got a phone call from the person who ran the collection center. Her name was Susan. She said, Reverend Joint, don't, don't come in today. I said, I have to come in. It's life and death. I need those 1 million stem cells. And she said, no, you don't need to come in because we got... 16 million stem cells from you yesterday. The most we got in 30 years of Memorial Sloan Kettering. And we got the same number from the guy you were praying with. The God we follow is, he's a go-ahead God. He goes into those places. Now, strangely enough, the thing that scared me the most about that cancer treatment was not the treatment itself. It was the isolation. We know about that now, don't we, with COVID, isolation. But in these treatments, you have to be totally isolated. So I was away from this wonderful congregation of 3,000 people that were loving me and supporting me and sending me cards and letters. I was in this cold place called New York City in Manhattan. I didn't know anyone. And I thought that this would be the hardest test for me. And sure enough, in the hospital, it was hard. I had gone from 185 to 140 and then under the pressure of the chemotherapy and what they call total body radiation. How, if how many of you have had radiation? You've had a number, of, I'm sure, you have, you know, 30 seconds at a time. I had 16 minutes at a time, twice a day, over the whole body. I went down to 120, and I wasn't able to eat for two weeks. I was getting through the last day of the radiation, morning and afternoon. I, had, I was excited because my wife was going to come in for the afternoon session. And I was struggling emotionally and spiritually at this point. And the woman who was the tray lady came in. Her name was Carmen. She was a Puerto Rican gal. She'd worked there 30 years. She came in to give the morning breakfast tray, which I couldn't eat anyway. And she said, Pastor, I have a word from the Lord for you. Can I give it to you? And I said, sure. 
And she came over and she laid her hands on me and she said, the Lord has revealed to me you're going to be well. And you're going to go back to your family and you're going to go back to your community and you're going to pastor again. And she and she and she blessed me. And I, I was just weeping at this point. I couldn't believe the preacher was getting preached to by the tray lady. And so she leaves and in in comes another gal. It was her first day on the job. Her name was Letitia. She was an African-American gal and her job was to clean the toilet. So she started to clean the toilet, but she kept looking at me, you know, and I looked kind of funny. I weighed 120 pounds at that point and was bald and so on. But uh, finally I said to her, did you want to ask me something? And she said, no, I want to tell you something, but I'm not telling you unless I get an amen first. I said, okay, amen, sister. And she came over and she put her hand on me, this stranger. And she said, you know, the Lord is the Lord who is with us beside the still waters and in the green pastures. But he goes ahead of us, even into the valley of the shadow where you are. And I know that you are going to be well. And I thought, you know, God is the the, the God we follow is. He had gone ahead to create around me a company of believers. I, I didn't even know there to let me support in my most critical moment. So my wife comes in and. I'm, you know, crying and blabbing about this wonderful morning I've had. And, you know, they put me in the wheelchair, take me down into the basement for this this last radiation treatment. It was in a room with four techs and the door shut like a bank vault, you know, those big bank vaults. And they would all leave and they would do this remotely. And I'd had no conversation with them because I was concentrating on standing actually in the position of the cross still for 16 minutes while this big machine worked. So I'm standing in that position. Now, my wife is not exactly a shrinking violet. And uh, she came in, she introduced herself to all the four techs. She insisted on going over to their stereo and putting on a gospel CD for me for this last session. I think they thought she was, you know, a bit forceful in that moment, but on comes the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir singing, he is able. And I'm, you know, trying not to dance now. And they, they leave the room and they go out. And I survived the final 16 minutes and they come in. My wife had not told them that I was a pastor. And they, four of them, come around me and say, you know, this is illegal according to hospital protocol, but we want to lay our hands on you and pray for you. And we want to assure you that we have a word from the Lord. You're going to be well. I said, Lord, I get it. Okay. I get it now. The God we follow... He goes into these personal situations ahead of us. He also goes into the places in the world where there is brokenness and struggle. If you followed God into some of those places, you know, most of the time in discernment in the church, it happens from below things. God is active in your lives, in the community as pastors. We just get an opportunity to spot that and see that and then encourage that. But occasionally, God gives a word directly to the pastor. And I had one of those words once. He encouraged me to build a local mission center. This was in New Jersey on the site of our property and to try to get other congregations involved in ministry, the homeless and ministry to seniors and and other kinds of help in the community. And this was this wonderful idea. And I was excited about it, you know, and you this guy can get excited. And I'm a little bit like him. I can get excited. I was so excited. I was almost floating. And the session got excited. We were all excited. I got 60 churches involved. But one of my wise elders said to me, have you talked to the neighbors yet? And I said, that's not going to be a problem. We will have a couple of teas. You know, we got members in the immediate neighborhood. I'll go to their house. We'll have a nice tea with biscuits. 
It'll be very civilized. We'll talk about, I'm sure the neighbors are going to be excited. So I go to this first tea, you know, I'm there, I'm, I'm all excited. And before I get a chance to give my pitch, this big guy stands up. Now remember, this is New Jersey and he is a labor organizer from Jersey City. And he goes, hey, my name's Tony. All right. And I got one thing to say about this house of hope, this mission center thing. There ain't no hope for the house of hope. And he was organizing the community against the project, right? So we had an open meeting at the church and, you know, Tony came. There was battle lines were drawn and everything. And my elders did the best they could, but it was a, it was a tough meeting. And I noticed two women going out the back, two young mothers. So I followed them out and I said to them, you know, you haven't had a chance to ask your questions because Tony's been kind of talking quite a bit, but, uh, I hope you'll come visit me and if you have questions and we can chat. And they came the next day. It happened to be my day off. But the God we follow is. And God has this wonderful sense of humor, right? Because these women had come because they also wanted to tell me what a bad idea this, this, this mission center was. And I said, oh, you know, I, I wasn't there to greet them. And they, they said, so they decided to go home and they got lost in our big church. And they were wandering around and they wandered down the hallway where we were hosting the homeless families. And the homeless family said, how are you? Would you like to join us for dinner? These two women sat down with the families and their children. and They had dinner together. They came back the next day and had dinner. Actually, they brought some desserts too. The following day, they brought presents. They came in on Monday and they said, Pastor, is it okay if we volunteer with the work you're doing with homeless people? I said, that would be wonderful. And they said, we also want to do something else for you. We're going to deal with Tony. <laughs> Is that okay with you? I said, that's okay. And they spread the word in the neighborhood that this place was going to be a blessing. I think we have a picture of it up here somewhere. There's a little picture. There it is, the House of Hope. And uh, they, they deal with about 15,000 folks off the street every year. And hand out a lot of food and do a lot of counseling. It's, it's quite a place. But what really amazes me about the God who goes ahead of us is that we didn't know when we created that, that the Superstorm Sandy was going to happen and that the epicenter was going to be the town where I was pastoring. I'll show you a little picture of what happened in Superstorm Sandy, I think. Do we have a picture? No, we don't have a picture. You'll have to imagine this. There were $2 billion worth of damage done in the town in 48 hours. There were 10,000 homeless people. And when we met with FEMA, you know, the government people finally arrived after two weeks. We met with them. And the first thing the guy said was not one federal dollar is going to come into the area for a year. And I looked at the other pastors and we mouthed to each other. It's got to be us. So we had to, in the course of that year, deal with 10,000 homeless people, deal with the hunger issues, restore the houses. It was an incredible task. But, you know, the House of Hope, because of the House of Hope, We had a community of churches that were already committed to working together. And God helped us to meet that challenge. God will go ahead of you, Malcolm into the areas in this community that break God's heart, into the problems that are all around us. Because the God we follow is... Now, God also goes ahead in our relationships and in our vocation. Vocation can be a hard thing to discern. Do you know about the man who had, who was struggling to find the vocation God was calling him to? He tried being a Velcro salesman, but he couldn't stick it. A tennis teacher, but he was too high strung. You know, masseuse, but he rubbed people the wrong way. 
He tried UPS delivery, but he couldn't express himself. Banking, but he, he had no real interest. Finally, within just a couple of weeks, he was a stone cutter and a bounty hunter, but he couldn't find his quarry. You get the idea, right? That was not the case with Matthew Young. The very first time I met Matthew, there's a 10-year difference in our ages. He was a college student at Lehigh University. I knew he was going to be a pastor. He was so warm and so gracious, and he was so excited about his faith, and he was so intelligent and just so engaged with everything. I knew God, God had his hand on that man, and that was true uh, in the ministry that he did at Lehigh University, and then the work he did at Princess Seminary, and the, uh, the church plant that he did out in Seattle, and the time he spent at uh, UPC, one of the biggest and, and most dynamic churches in, in, in the country. In the year we spent together as an intern, I'll never forget the first sermon he preached. He stood up without notes. He preached a 12-minute riveting sermon that felt like it went by in 30 seconds. And, you know, better a sermon than I had preached in 10 years. And I, I, it was so clear that this man was meant to be a pastor, that God had shaped his life for this vocation and, I believe, for this community right here. Now, I did have doubts about the relationship side of Matthew's life. I'll have to confess And so did my wife, because Matthew, he didn't believe in dating unless there was a potential for marriage. And he had high standards. Let me tell you, they were very high. And so he never did any dating in the year that he was in our community. Uh, He had some intentional friendships, as he called them, but no dating. Now, you know, he was in his 20s. And so we would kid him, you know, the 20s became the 30s. And my wife would kid him very actively and say, you know, when are you going to lower your criteria? I mean, are you really expecting that God is going to create that perfect person? And my, it got to be an actual figure. My wife would say, with red hair, you know, who's a seminary graduate and has won the prize in preaching and exegesis at Princeton Seminary. So this was a standing joke. And then in his mid-30s, there was a knock on my door. I opened my door, and he's there with Jill. This beautiful red-haired woman who's just won the preaching prize at Princeton University and next to Jesus. Uh, the God we follow is, he is the go-ahead God. Now, you know, I, it's time to kind of bring this to a conclusion, isn't it? I love the story about the pastor who preached his heart out. At the end of the service, there was a visitor at the end, end of the line, and he greeted this person. And the visitor said, you know, pastor, your sermon reminded me of the love and peace of God. Now, the pastor probably should have just taken that compliment and, and you know, said thank you and, and, and gone on. But it had been a long week. And so he said, can you please tell me more? That's the most affirming thing I ever heard. Can you just tell me more about that? And the man said, your sermon reminded me of the love of God because I thought it was never going to end. And the, the peace of God because it passed all human understanding. We can't go there today. So we better bring it to a conclusion. But I want to tell you. Just a little word of prophecy that as this community grows, this church is going to be a fantastic outpost of the kingdom of God. And everything that you've been in this wonderful place is going to be multiplied. You have an amazing staff. There's a lot of faith and energy and love in this room. And we will be praying for you and we have high expectations that the crowd in heaven is going to be excited to see the work that you're doing and that you're going to follow. The God we follow and that you're going to follow him into an amazing future. Hallelujah and amen.